This is Mate, a digital radio show about marketing, advertising, technology, and entrepreneurship. I'm your host, Adam Jaffrey, and I'm a digital strategist and entrepreneur. Today, we're speaking with Saul Flores. Saul is the strategy director at DT. He's a super smart guy. In fact, he's one of the most well-educated people that I know. Today, we talk about the crazy company that he started his career at, where they fire people for putting labels on wrong. We talk about what Sol learned from his time at Stanford Business School, and we discuss, really, what is innovation and how to organize companies for it. Today, it's a little longer episode than usual, but I'm sure you'll agree it is one of the best. So, let's go and talk to Sol Flores. So, who are you and what do you do? So, who am I? You know, I think by training... Um, you know, I'm an economist, uh, manager, and a leader. And what I do these days is I, I talk a lot and I write a little bit. Um, you know, the things that I talk about and write about are mostly how companies can use technology to create experiences for their customers and solve business problems more efficiently, uh, greater return to the business. So that sounds very interesting. How did you get to that point, though? Uh, totally by accident, not by design. Um, came out of college thinking about going into environmental space, so green energy, a company like Tesla or um, somebody producing green energy, had no engineering skills, had no work experience, so I wasn't really qualified for any of that kind of stuff. Um, and I found this company that would hire me uh, in 2008, which is a tough time to be graduating college in the U.S. thought I would just stick there until the recession was over um, and just have really found myself not wanting to leave the space I found myself in, which was doing analysis, data, and problem solving around you know, how organizations can help their customers. So where did you go after that? I feel like you're in a very different place now to what you just described. I'm not sure about that. Yeah, I think, um, you know, the job that I had initially out of college was management development program at this big e-commerce company. Um, so what they're doing there is taking different sorts of bright people from really different academic backgrounds, giving them all the skills they need to run this company and make it more efficient and satisfy customers and have that as a primary driver of how they make a ton of money. Um, I think a lot of that's still what I do at DT. Um, you know, some of the applications are a bit different and, you know, the way that we work with businesses is a bit different than being internal manager, but I actually see a lot of continuity in, in what I've done throughout my career so far. Mm. And I guess in saying that it is easy and in, in hindsight to connect the dots mm. when you look backwards, but looking forwards, I yeah. mean, you mentioned it at the start, like you, you didn't plan to get into that space and it was totally by accident. You ended up where you are today. So what are some other accidents you, you made uh, along that journey? <laughs> um, some fortunate accidents. Yeah, yeah. Um, well, I did a master's degree a couple years into that. Um, and I really focused that degree on um, public sector business, essentially. So how, to, how does government run? How do nonprofits run? I thought, you know, this is my way back into the social sector. Um, and that actually taught me a lot about why, why business is important, why commerce is important. Um, and kind of made me more interested in not leaving business. So that was one thing that kind of steered me towards where I am now. Um, definitely a big turning point for me was um, going to Stanford Business School for this executive program, which is ultimately how I ended up at DT. Um, and that that really kind of was a game changer experience for me where I kind of opened up my eyes about how big the world really is and how much opportunity there is to change things through through leadership, especially. You're obviously quite well educated in terms of MBA and well, Stanford Business well School. Perhaps, yeah. <laughs> um, 
So, like, what are some some of the key things that you've taken away from each of those points in your education? Um, you know, from high school to college, economics is what I wanted to do, and I thought I'd spend my life as an economist of some sort. Um, you know, I think the skill set that you get from economics is how do people make decisions fundamentally, right? It's not really about what's you know what's the unemployment rate or what's GDP growth. Um, it's really fundamentally about people make choices. There's lots of factors that influence how they make choices. What can we understand about people by the choices they make, and how can we help them make better ones? Um, and that was that was really inspiring to me, and has been sort of a, a central focus, I guess, for me professionally. Is everything's about decisions. Um, and the better we can get at understanding people and the better we can help them make decisions, that's what shapes the world around us. Um, I also had a minor in uh, Jewish history while I was there. Um, and history was a really interesting study because what we focused on was what they call popular history. So not the history that you know the kings and powerful wrote about themselves, but what was really going on for people who were you know, peasants and struggling to survive and who were illiterate during this time and didn't leave a recorded history. And how do we deduce what really happened from what we were told probably did happen. Mm-hmm. And so I think learning a lot about that in college personally has helped me understand some of my own kind of family history, um, but also taught me a lot of healthy skepticism about, you know, what's recorded and what's kind of nominally true is often the opposite of what was really going on for most people in their experience. So I think that from college, that was a big, big factor for me. Um, and also just gave me some basic skills in terms of Data analysis, that was a big part of economics, um, and the ability to write and form an opinion through what we did in, in history courses. Mm-hmm. So you've, you've mentioned a few things that are actually really interesting to me here. So I want to unpack them, um, one at a time. The first is, uh, is economics. I wanted to kind of ask your opinion about, um, I mean, there's kind of this, this emerging field of behavioral economics and, and how, um, economics affects the way people act and make decisions, um, kind of from a psychological perspective. Mm. Uh, but then there's this, this other kind of field of, uh, buyer behavior or consumer behavior. Mm. And you, I don't know how educated you are in consumer behavior. It takes a more psychological perspective, whereas, um, economics is really rooted in the field of economics. But, you know, do you see much of a, a difference between those? And well, I think, I think traditional economics um, has a lot of really clean algebraic frameworks. You know, it says people are rational, and so you make decisions, Adam, based on the cost of something and the utility you get from it, the utils you get from it. And this idea of utils has always been just this really made-up thing. It's kind of fundamental to economics. Um, and there's this there's this great quote in Econometrics. Like, I don't remember who said it, but you know. Economics is basically these great French recipes that tell you how to cook this perfectly balanced dish. But then when you go to the pantry, the ingredients you have are turpentine and a bag of sand. Mm -hmm. And so it's all this really nice, perfect, clean theory that once you actually look at what you have to work with and what's actually observable and measurable is really too limited to actually make sense of of what the theory is supposed to be promising. And that's where I think, you know, I don't actually see behavioral economics as a big splinter from from traditional economics is just a much better set of ingredients. So if we say that Adam makes his choices based on, you know, the utility of a product and the price of that product, mm-hmm. behavioral economics is a great way of unpacking, well, how does Adam construct that concept of utility? What is meaningful and what does Adam actually get out of buying this product? And it's not just, you know, this toothpaste has a whitener in it. There's something about the brand of that toothpaste. And maybe there's something about it's a toothpaste he had as a child and it's a way for him to kind of 
have a smell or a taste that connects him with a, a safer point in his time that has nothing to do with, you know, the really hardcore, you know, elements of that product in a really measurable way. Mm-hmm. And that's what I think behavioral economics is about. And that's why, to me, economics is those two things of how do people make choices and what do we learn about people by identifying the choices they make. Mm-hmm. And that's what I think, um, you know, a lot of psychology, the experimental side, that's really what a lot of those things come down to is a lot of psychological experiments are based on giving someone a choice to make. Um, you know, if, if we give you a red pencil and a yellow pencil, which one do you pick up? And if we tell you your girlfriend broke up with you, does that influence which color pencil you're going to pick up? Mm-hmm. Um, or if we, you know, have someone standing in the room and watching you, does that influence the choice that you might make about how you perform a certain task? Or if we tell you that there's a monetary incentive, does that influence what you're going to do with the task that we give you? If, you know, so to me, psychology is the experimental side of, um, how people make choices. Some of it is, um, and that's really what economics at its core is all about. So I think the merging of those two disciplines, um, that's sort of just the natural path of science, right? Mm. The way that we tend to organize thinking and knowledge is first in silos. And then the big breakthroughs come when we make connections between different theories, different practices. Yeah. Yeah. Well, any theory in isolation is not very useful. So, yeah. Um, so that's great. I think consumer behavior, um, it's not as academic, I guess. Um, Mm -hmm. and you know, people like us are partly to blame for that. Um, (laughs) You know, what passes for science in marketing is, is pretty, pretty shit for the most part. Mm-hmm. You know, I, I read this thing online that said that some brand in the Europe did something with their homepage. And so that's going to work for you too, without really taking into consideration the kind of control factors you do if you're doing it scientifically. Mm-hmm. Yeah, fair point. The second part of just going right back to the start of uh, the introduction, um, you mentioned, uh, this kind of idea of you, you developing a healthy skepticism. Mm. What, is, what does that mean? You know, it's funny um, that I even use that term. Uh, this first job that I had, we had this um, really specific rubric for how we would hire people. Um, so we had an evaluation criteria when we were interviewing someone about healthy skepticism. Mm-hmm. So it was like a row on a scorecard that we'd give people a number against. So it's funny that I've now internalized that to describe myself. Mm-hmm. Um, so a healthy skepticism um, means that it's a productive skepticism, right? So it's something where every piece of information you're given, every assumption that someone's implicitly making, you're calling that out. You're judging to get something tangible that you can actually see or you're testing that, that assumption. Um, unhealthy skepticism is you're just, you're just salty, right? You're just negative. You're just kind of pissy about things for no good reason. Um, or you have a lack of skepticism. You know, you just, um, sure, great idea. Let's go do that. I saw this thing in South by Southwest. Looks brilliant. That's going to take over the world. Mm-hmm. You know, that healthy skepticism is always, that's got to be your first instinct. Um, it's something that is just at the forefront of your personality. Everything you hear, mm, prove it to me. You know? Yep. Yep. So, uh, so tell me about this job where, where the healthy skepticism question criteria is part of uh, the interview. Yeah. Um, so this is a, a highly secretive, under the radar, 120 year old, uh, multi billion dollar family owned uh, e commerce company. <laughs> um, so they're called McMaster Car Supply. Um, right. They've been in business forever. So since 1901, they've been selling roughly the same range of products. Um, and they're just amazingly successful. Uh, so what they do is they, most of their management jobs are held by people under the age of 25. 
uh, who have no management experience before they join. Most people are coming right out of college, um, and they have a very well-developed management development program. Um, so you come in, you know, you're, you're 21 years old. Um, you're, you know, hung over four days a week because you're kind of still in college lifestyle mode. And now you're managing a team of 20 people who've been working there for 15 years. Most of those people you're managing will have had management experience before they joined that company. So they've actually done your job longer than you've even been working. Mm-hmm. Um, the company is extremely well optimized across any dimension you could think of. I've never heard of a better run company. And so you're, you're fiercely driven and it's a highly competitive environment. And you're making these really incremental improvements to things that are already performing at beyond best practice. Mm-hmm. Um, it's a really, um, dogmatic company in a lot of ways. So fundamentally what they do is they, they practice Lean Six Sigma, right? So you can go to a lot of different places and learn Lean Six Sigma. What is that? Lean Six Sigma is, um, just a process improvement methodology that's driven by data, right? So you measure basically, um, did this thing achieve the right customer outcome? How much cost and effort went into producing it? Let's find those things that don't achieve the customer outcome and eliminate them while also making them easier to do. Mm-hmm. The, the interesting thing is you're not allowed to talk about Lean Six Sigma there. So there's no mention of Lean Six Sigma. There's no, there's almost no mention of any sort of methodology that's ever been devised outside McMaster cars. So they have their own language for everything that they do. Um, it's a super competitive program. So, um, the second week after I joined, a girl who had started three months after me was fired for poor performance, um, which just freaks everybody out because we're just like, my God, you know, it's all going to be shit canned in the next three yeah. months. And I really wish I'd taken that job with, you know, somebody else. <laughs> um, you know, it's weird because it's a company you've never heard of and they pay really well. So, um, it's, it's sort of like you get this job and you're like, is this, what is this? You know, it's mm-hmm. too good to believe. You go up on Glassdoor and all the stories are just, you know, these people are brutal. These people are monsters. They fire you without warning. You're like, you know, what, what am I getting myself into? Um, and it was great, you know, absolutely transformed me. I, there's no way I'd be where I'm now if I hadn't had the experience of working there and definitely not even close. Um, part of, you know, what they do is they take these people in very early, but they also promote you really quickly. So mm-hmm. they, they shed a ton of people. Um, the retention on management hires is, is terrible and that's by design. They don't want to keep most of the people. They want to get alpha personalities, competitive environment, get really hard work out of them for about two years, let them go, keep a couple of them who they really like and who fit the culture, keep them for maybe five years, shed most, most of them. And then everyone else who's going to stay past five years, they're there for life. So is McMaster car brilliant because of this? Um, it's, it's always interesting. Like whenever you talk to someone who used to work there, it's like that girlfriend you've had, who you've never quite gotten over. Yeah. Like she was super hot, but she was terrible for you. Like you're always going to want to talk about it a little bit, but you can't quite make up your mind about what to say. Mm-hmm. Um, the company is, is more profitable and grows better than any business. You know, it's, it's family owned. Um, and it's just, it's wildly profitable. Um, you can't say that they're not right. You know what I mean? Um, well, if the results speak for themselves, right? Yeah. So. Um, it's, it's a complex business, it's a sophisticated business. Um, you know, that expression of the right way, the wrong way and my way mm-hmm. it's, it's the, my way yeah. company, you know, it's not, it's not perfect. It's not right. You could probably look at anything they do and say, there's a different way to do it. Someone else has this better, but looking at the totality of how they run that business, it's fantastic. It sounds a lot like a Steve Jobs run Apple or what is popularly um, looked at as a Steve Jobs run Apple. 
kind of the, the zone of disbelief? Like, it has to be perfect, and if it's not up to scratch, you're fucking fired. We don't like perfect in a master car. Okay. Things shouldn't be perfect. If they're perfect, you've spent a little bit too much time on them. Mm-hmm. So there's, so a, there's a very... What, what should they be? They should be very smart. Okay. And they should be tested early on. And they should be validated with data, but they should not be perfect. Tell me about uh, this funny... You've told me this story once before. Tell me about the, the packaging and, and the labels on the boxes when they're shipping things from McMaster car. Yeah, so I mean, you know, the, um, the order accuracy rate there is well above 99.9%. So in terms of customer returns or anything that a customer actually reports, it's phenomenally good. So what McMaster car does is finds ways to invent errors for customers. So we do these things called pack audits where a group of managers stands at the end of the packaging line as items are going out the door and we slice them open. We have a something like 25-point quality inspection that we'll do. Um, and it can be things like, you know, on a box, there's a little black outline of where the label's supposed to go. And we have a tolerance for how outside of that label dimension it's allowed to be. Um, so is that a slight angle? A little bit of an angle's fine. You know, that's okay. Too much of an angle, not okay. Um, we do a lot of stuff where um, we'll ship items to ourselves. Mm-hmm. Um, we'll ship items to like relatives around the country um, and look at how the packing list is coming out. So we made a big stink out of you know packing list being too crinkled uh-huh. a few years ago. Um, that was a big problem. But you know the, the way this kind of comes together for an employee there is um, if you're filling items in, in orders in the warehouse, um, you'll probably do 500 items a day. So you'll do 10,000 in a year. You're going to walk eight miles a day while you're doing it. Um, and you're allowed no more than one error per month. An error can be an obvious thing, like wrong item, wrong quantity. Yeah. Um, the system, it, it can be little stuff though. The system says, you know, based on the size of the item, this is the right size box to put it in. Mm-hmm. You put it in a five inch by five inch by five inch. If you grab the seven by seven by seven, that's an error. That's unacceptable. Mm-hmm. If the label is off a little bit, that's unacceptable. If you pull the box out from the shelf and don't push it in all the way, that's an error. And that's unacceptable. We have a routine that fillers are supposed to follow um, about how they circle and check off line items to follow a quality control process. That's not done properly. Even if the fill was right, that's an error. And this company only hires highly educated college graduates. For management jobs. So there's a really interesting thing that happens here. So really highly educated, you know, tier one Ivy League sort of schools for management hires and you have to be top of your class president you know entrepreneur on the side you know alpha alpha um but the frontline employees mostly um so if i'm a a forklift driver in the warehouse i'm probably 35 to 45 i was the manager of a home depot or supervisor at an ikea for about 10 years before joining master car and then going right back down to the bottom Mm mm-hmm So, and I think that's brilliant. I think that what they've done there is a lot of those guys who have those jobs um, work crazy hours, right? So if you're the manager of a retail store, you work every holiday, you work till midnight, you work the weekends. And McMaster will pay you the same as that management position to take a frontline job. So the people in those frontline jobs are self-managing so that these college graduates don't actually have to run the operation. And those people who are on the front lines can fix problems themselves so that these college graduates are really focused on, you know, expanding the facility or getting big chunks taken out of errors or, or quality control, things like that. So I actually think that's brilliant. It creates a really weird tension. Mm. 
Um, especially for people in their first year there who, you know, think of yourself the first time you were, well, you didn't go to college, so you're, you're a weirdo, but. Um, I went to uni in, in Melbourne here. I, so I, I, I left my first degree, yeah, yeah, but yeah. I did complete my second degree. But you did have it. You, you've had this experience where you, you started managing a group of people kind of very, very early on. Yep. Who had been doing this for a job a lot longer than you had. Yes. Um, and so for a lot of people, especially right out of college, they just lack some basic professional maturity. Mm-hmm. Um, and for that person to be your boss, when you were someone else's boss before you joined this company, you worked there for a long time and you're hitting these crazy performance standards about less than one error of 10,000 lines. And then this kid shows up looking hungover with a wrinkly shirt on. That's a challenge. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so, you know, how that gets managed and how that gets handled, um, is a big part of the culture. Yeah. So <laughs> we could talk about McMaster car stories, um, mm-hmm. For, for hours on end. But um, I think it's pretty apparent that it's a very unique organization, um, very successful, but also very uh, particular. And I'm just kind of wondering, you said that um, McMaster Car was really incredibly valuable for your professional development and you wouldn't be where you are today without it. What did you take away from that experience? If you could name one thing, what would it be? To me, it's, it's really... Um seeing what a perfectly run or perfectly optimized business can be. You know, a company that's so mature, it's been doing the same thing for 120 years at an extremely high level. The degree of coordination between every single part of that company, the way that data is used, the way that management operates at an extremely high level is something that I think I reference constantly. You know, so if we're talking to a client at DT, how can this be more efficient or how can we get better strategy work done or how can this marketing work be done better? I'm constantly referencing, you know, this kind of very elite model of business that I was a part of, um, had. I think that's really important. That's probably the number one thing. A lot of, you know, just basic skills of, of how to manage, how to listen, how to diagnose problems, how to implement things. Um, a lot of those hard skills, I guess, would be the, the number two. But in terms of a mindset, it's, it's seeing what you know, truly great company can look like. So when you were at McMaster car, um, they, they put you through Stanford business school. Yeah. So they, um, there's, they're rich, right? So one of the nice benefits is every employee gets any kind of education they want to get done paid for 100% while they work there. <laughs> um, so I had the, the master's degree and Stanford hundred percent paid for by this company. There's no contract. You don't have to stay for five years. There's no penalties. They just pay for it. Um, cause they want to. Yeah. That's, that's kind of nice. <laughs> great, great benefit. Um, hugely, hugely valuable benefit. Yeah. Um, so yeah, I'd done the master's degree. Um, and I, I got promoted really quickly within that company. So I was, I was about three years in, I had 150 people working in the division that I was running. Um, and in a lot of ways I was up to the job and a lot of ways I felt like I need some more development to, to kind of handle this. Um, so I started looking at, you know, what are, what's the kind of next level of executive leadership development and, and what can I do to get, get that sort of knowledge. Um, so it's a bit unusual. I, th- I think, um, usually they only pay for programs that give you a degree. Um, this was an executive program, so there's no degree. So they, they kind of okayed it. Um, and yeah, it's funny because the program was split up into two parts that had a two month gap and I actually quit in between that two month gap. <laughs> Yeah. Uh, and they still pay for the second part, which is really nice. 
I was a little worried about that. Yeah, um, because I'm sure um, the second half of a Stanford uh, course is not particularly cheap. No, yeah, so not as self- expensive as the first half. <laughs> well, yeah, so to self fund that would have been uh, would have been a bit. Yeah, um, and so I think I think getting the job in Mastercard was turning point number one. Um, Stanford was a big turning point for me. Mm-hmm. Um, that program, you know. It's mostly people who are at a very senior executive level. Um, I was the youngest person there by far. Average age was in the 50s. I was 25 at the time. Um, and I was extremely nervous about just showing up, you know. Yeah. Uh, who are these guys? They're more worldly than I am. The thing about this program is it's, it's international. So they, um, they only let in a few Americans. So it's people from, you know, um, Saudi Arabia, the Emirates, from um, Singapore, from China, from South America, from South Africa, from Australia. Um, and so just the feeling of, holy shit, like, I got here, but what am I going to, you know, am I just going to be immediately shown to be a fool amongst all these people? And are they going to regret ever letting me get here? And, you know, how am I going to deal with this? Um, so that was actually worked out. That was good because there's a lot of preparation. They gave a ton of homework and reading before the thing started. And so I just really went to town on that. So I was, I was really, really well prepared in terms of, you know, what we're going to discuss in class and all that kind of stuff. Um, and just kind of being exposed to that level of stuff. So for example, one of the guys there is the head of sales for a company called Taiwan Semiconductor Company. Um, they're a multi-billion dollar company, one of the biggest manufacturers of semiconductors. Um, and learning that they don't write contracts for sales. They just do handshakes. Mm-hmm. And so people in the class are asking, well, what happens if you don't deliver? And he says, we deliver. We always deliver. Yeah. And just being able to, and it's, it's a residential program. So you're living in basically dorms with these guys and, and eating meals together and just hearing about their life experiences and, and how they got there. Mm-hmm. And just kind of over the course of the program, realizing like, I can, I can hang with these guys. Like I can talk with these guys. I can think with these guys. If we're doing a breakout session, they're listening to what I have to say. They're getting value from it. Mm. That was this experience of like, I think, I think I can do this. You know, I think I can work at the same level that these, these sorts of people do. Um, that was just a hugely eye-opening experience for me. At, in mid-20s? 25, yeah. What, what stories were you telling when they're telling you about the multi-million dollar business deals they've done? And- <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I mean, I, so in terms of, you know, life stories, I didn't have a lot to contribute. I think... You know, they thought it was kind of cool to talk to a 25 year old guy who's going to parties and, you know, single at the time, that kind of thing. Um, so they kind of had a kick living, out of that. Living vicariously through a you. A little bit of that. Yeah, a little bit. Um, the company I was working for was really interesting to them. And actually, a lot of the professors mm-hmm. at Stanford knew a lot about us. Yep. Um, cause we send a lot of kids, a lot of people to Stanford Business School from that company. Um, so they're like, oh, Saul from McMaster Car, you guys should listen up to, to how those guys do it. Um, so they actually, they had a lot of interest in, in hearing about what I was doing and how that company ran. Mm-hmm. And, you know, why would a company like that send a guy like me to a program like this? That was an interesting story for, for people to hook on to. Yep. Um, just to go on a, a slight bit of a tangent, you, you mentioned that you were, uh, you know, quite nervous about mm. being a bit out of your depth and, and not yeah. knowing whether you were kind of worthy of um, that environment. Do you experience imposter syndrome? Constantly, yeah. Um, I think that's been a factor every every new job I've ever had. There's kind of this cycle of um, probably about nine months. Just what have I done? How have I gotten this job? I'm going to be found out any day now. Get my resume ready. Get ready to find something else. After nine months, you start to see some daylight. And you're like, oh, you know what? There's a few things here that I know how to do. I don't have everything sorted yet, but 
got a few points of value I can really contribute. Um, going in usually into about the two-year mark, I feel pretty good. Kind of know what I'm doing, kind of know what's coming. And that's when you start to get the itch of, you know, what's next? What else can I do from there? Mm-hmm. Um, but, you know, the imposter syndrome is a, a big thing. I think, you know, I, I never really thought I was, you know, particularly high performer in school or anything until kind of the end of college. Um, so I never really identify myself as, you know, this, this elite dude who, who does great stuff and, you know, wins all the time. Um, so that's something that really still don't, don't really expect. Um, and I think, you know, I guess it just keeps you working. Do you feel that way now that you're an elite? Not really. No. Um, I think especially DT, you know, just talk to people all day long who just have such depth of knowledge in areas that seem really intimidating to me, you know, tech guys, design people with just really hard practical skills and a lot of theory behind it. Um, you know, constantly just feel like, how can I possibly contribute to you know what these guys already know how to do? So what did you learn from your experience at Stanford business school? What was the one thing from there? Um, so and the, the course was three things. So it was uh, strategic analysis, design thinking, um, and personal leadership skills. Um, it was really, really big to me to, to have, I mean, the professors there are just incredible. You know, what they do, their sabbaticals are probably the most interesting things. You know, I took a year off. I went and did this really bizarre cultural experiment for Facebook where we blah, 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 and we yeah. learned all this stuff. And, you know, just learning what they do and how they think about leadership as a science. Yeah. Um, that was really important. Um, I had no exposure to design thinking before I went to that program. And so just thinking about the process of iteration how to structure creativity into an environment and into a brief and things like that was really important. Um, and I think more than anything else, you know, really just talking to people. I think everyone who's at that program said, you know, the courses were great. Professors are great. The most valuable thing is just talking to other, other people who, who run companies or who, who do interesting stuff and just find out what are the problems we all have in common, where the differences culturally, you know, if, if I tell you I have a problem and you start laughing, what does that mean? Mm-hmm. You know, um, that kind of stuff was, was really, really valuable. Definitely the, the network and who you talk to there is, was really powerful for me. So from Stanford business school, you, um, you got, went to DT, you came here. No. So Stanford went to management consulting for a couple of years. Okay. Um, so I had wanted to go to New York. I was interested in consulting, um, found a firm that had hired a bunch of people from McMaster to join. So I talked to some of them and, uh, got hooked up with that job. Mm-hmm. Um, so I did that for a couple of years, um, really like a breath of fresh air after McMaster. McMaster is a, a tough culture to work in. Um, and I remember the first, first time I gave a presentation there and no one second guessed anything that I said, mm-hmm. I just felt so free. You know, yeah. I just felt, wow, this, this is what the rest of the world is. I never worked anywhere else, you know, yeah. a, a company and a culture where people want to have fun, where people want to be nice to each other. Um, that was, that was really new and that was great. Um, and the, the scale of projects that that, that group Optimity Advisors does is, is really incredible. Mm-hmm. Um, so I did that for a couple of years, got to work in Europe, which was really good. Um, that was my first taste of working internationally, kind of outside my culture. And I was doing that. Um, I was actually flying back from a trip uh, in London when Brian, DT's CEO, uh, hit me up on LinkedIn and said, hey, got an idea. What do you think? Mm-hmm. That's how I got here. And then so you, you joined DT and you were, was a general manager of Sydney for a yep. little while and yep. then got promoted to strategy director. Yep. And you were how old at that point? 
so I was 27 when Brian reached out to me, 28 when I started DT, still 28 when we started as strategy director. So you're a strategy director of a quite a successful mm. um, multi-city digital agency um, in Australia at 28 years old, heading up the strategy department. How, how do you feel about that? Yeah, I, I think one thing is, um, you know, experience, I think, is important. Um, I think there's there's a bit of a sort of fetish, especially in technology, that experience is, is bad. You know, just, just go for raw talent and passion and reward those things and put those people in charge all the time. But I think because I started with MasterCard being a manager from day one, it's not like I did I did frontline work for 10 years and started being a manager and started doing something else. It was kind of management from the beginning. Mm-hmm. Um, and because that's the education, the training that I've had, um, I think, you know, in terms of, you know, skills and, and frameworks and things like that, it's pretty well prepared. Um, I think, you know, I think agency is a little different because it is a, it tends to be a younger sort of workforce. Um, you don't tend to have people who've been doing it for 30, 40 years, um, especially at DT. And... Also, the nature of digital is, you know, nothing's more than two years old in terms of what's fresh and what's new and, and what's cutting edge. And since DT's work is always about, you know, that, that next edge of things, um, it's not like you can never be that far behind. You know, mm-hmm. what we're doing with these platforms the year before I started doesn't look too much like what we're actually doing with them now. Yep. So there's, there's a huge learning curve. Um, and that was very terrifying just in the sense mm-hmm. of how am I going to learn this stuff? Yeah. Um, but, a lot of what we did at Master was pretty similar. You know, e-commerce company, a lot of DT clients are e-commerce businesses. There's a lot of overlap there. Mm-hmm. Um, and actually, it was kind of refreshing coming out of consulting, where we're dealing with these huge insurance companies on these really technical projects. And, you know, digital marketing's got a lot of jargon. Insurance is insane. Yeah. You know, I, I would, <laughs> yeah. I remember spending days in workshops where I had literally no idea anything that was said around me at any time for the whole three days. You know, it's like a hundred page glossary to, and you can't even find this stuff. Like, you know, yeah. the, the acronyms and the jargon they have in insurance, there's no, there's no Wikipedia for that. There's, mm-hmm. there's just no way to find this stuff out. Um, so I, I remember coming in and being like, all right, you know, there's some stuff I need to definitely some stuff I need to get up to speed on. Um, but it wasn't quite as scary actually as, as consulting had been in that mm-hmm. sense. So you mentioned experience is important and, and that's why you've been given quite a few opportunities o- over your career. But I would argue at 28 years old, how much experience can you really have as a senior leader in an organization? Yeah. I mean, in terms of years, that's, that's, yeah, that's a good question. Um, you know, I think I was 22 the first time I had to fire somebody. Um, the guy was, you know, 45, worked at that company for 15 years. Um, I think that kind of stuff grows you up a little bit faster. Yeah, that's, um, that's rough. <laughs> you know, and then going from there into a job, where I think we fired 25 people in six months, mm-hmm. all for performance, different issues. Um, that kind of stuff really, I think, does mature you in different ways. Um, and I think when I, when I first got that job at McMaster, just the reality that I'm responsible for these people's well-being. Um, you know, if I'm a good manager, I'm making them successful. If I'm a bad manager, they're not going to perform well and they'll get fired. Mm-hmm. Um, I think taking that to heart early on, you know, gave me some perspective on the responsibilities of a manager and, and what you owe to the people that you work, that work for you. Um, 
And so I, I think that that helps. Yeah. And you know, who, who has experience for a senior job the first time they do it, I would ask you. Yeah, I suppose just most people, um, generally incrementally improve their skills up until a point where you kind of have to take, there's always a leap of faith, right? Yeah. Um, not just for a management job, but for any job, really. Like if I'd, I'd argue that if you're, um, if you're prepared for a job, then you're probably, you probably shouldn't be doing it. Mm. Because it's not going to push you and, and, um, you're not going to learn anything from it. And so I, I think there's always that leap of faith moment, but I think just most people would incrementally ladder up rather than kind of, but look, it's, 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 um, it's kind of illustrated through your career history and your, your education. You've done thing after thing that you're probably not quite qualified for. Mm. Um, and then you excel at it. And just the stories that you've been telling the last, you know, 20 minutes, half an hour are, um, you know, at Stanford Business School, I got there and I was really worried about what people would think. Mm. And then I figured out pretty quickly that I could have a conversation with these people. So then you kind of you almost like level yourself up to their level and then the next thing um, comes after that, the next thing comes after that. So, yeah, I just wanted to hear your, your perspective yeah, on it yeah. um, and kind of challenge you a little bit, ask some tough interview questions, you know. <laughs> <laughs> um, so... So, do you have, looking back at your career um, and, and education, do you have an I made it moment? Not really. I mean, I think the more I've worked, the more I realize there's more to do. Have you, have you made it yet? No, I mean, I hope not, you know. Yeah. Because um, I guess the question is predicated on the fact that you, you feel like you've made it. So, if you you continue to want to learn and do bigger and better things, then I guess there still is no... You know, it's, it's funny because, you know, in, there's different ways to look at it. Um, the first salary that I had at McMaster Car wasn't really that much, but it was a number that was more than what I ever thought I would make in my career. I just didn't have high expectations about, you know, financial success professionally. Um, and so from that first job, I was like, all right, well, I've already done better than I ever thought I would. You know, I thought I would go into public sector stuff or nonprofit stuff and, you know, max out at, you know, 80, 90 grand a year, which is great money to make. Um, and so I was like, oh, this is, this is good. Mm -hmm. Um, but there's just, I, I constantly see people who are, you know, better thinkers, better at getting stuff done, better at solving problems, better at leading people, better at being inspirational, better at following their passion. There's, you know, on any dimension that I would want to succeed, there's, there's people who just, you know, are lapping me, you know, mm -hmm. pacing me by a mile. Mm -hmm. Um, and I think the more exposure I get to, you know, senior clients or people who are just really technically skilled at what they do, the more you, you just realize it, it, there's no, there's no end to it. Mm -hmm. Um, and there probably never will be because you can't be all knowing and all doing. So at some point, like you got to accept that this is the path I'm on, but there's always going to be someone better. There's always someone that has more money. There's always someone that's more skilled, more knowledgeable, more educated, yeah. or whatever. Yeah. If you don't think that way, you know, you're probably an asshole. Yeah. That's, that's <laughs> to some extent. And you know, I'd, I'd like not to be. Yeah. So. Yep. Um, so we were talking um, the other day about your kind of approach to things. And you mentioned this phrase, um, you're a highly trained logical cynic. Yeah. And, uh, a, a value that you have is pragmatic idealism. Yeah. What the fuck does that mean? 
Uh, I think, you know, we work in a really creative company, right? We're, we're surrounded by great out there sort of thinking. Um, and so the idealist part of that is I think that that's the only way to, the only way to be. You have to really be stretching and, and thinking. But the pragmatic side is I think that 99% of those ideas are totally worthless. They're poorly thought out. The people who are advocating them just haven't done their homework and it's frustrating and you know, they should, they should be quiet and go do a little bit of research before they start presenting something. So what's an example of that? Um, we were talking about this, but the other day I was at a, um, a seminar or something, a talk, uh, where a bunch of planners in Sydney had gone to South by Southwest and they were presenting back to this room full of people what the coolest things were that they saw and their predictions for how they were going to change the future. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I, I could like barely keep my seat. You know, so one of these guys uh, has a topic, you know, the future of bots. He's like, oh, bots are going to change the world and it's, it's, the future's coming. And he's talking about this robot that he saw at South by Southwest that um, could pack boxes, basically, in a warehouse. Mm-hmm. He's like, this is just so groundbreaking and it you know, can learn. It can be taught to pack different sorts of boxes. And, oh, it's just going to take away all the jobs that no one wants to do. And this is, this is just going to happen. This year is the year. He's like, you know, you're just an idiot. Like, Robots that pack boxes have been around for at least 50 years. Mm-hmm. You know, this one has an iPad on its face, but that doesn't really matter. And in a warehouse environment, you want to program these things from a central place, not out on the floor tapping away at an iPad. Yeah. And, you know, this concept, these are jobs that people don't want to do. Again, you know, I, from McMaster, I know hundreds, thousands of people who do these jobs, who want to do these jobs. I don't think he knows what he's talking about. Mm-hmm. And in terms of, you know, is this a change to the world? It, it's just not. Like, we've been doing this for a long time. And arguably, you know, innovations in that, that space and, you know, wrote industrial jobs are probably the least important because we've been doing them for so long. Mm-hmm. And to a room full of digital strategists, what does it have to do with anything? Mm-hmm. What is innovation? Uh, yeah, so innovation, really simple, you know. Um, problem that hasn't been solved before or a different way of solving the same problem in a way that you actually get value from in a marketplace. Mm-hmm. So I think, you know, innovation has become this big mystical secret sauce kind of thing that everyone's trying to tap into. Um, and it's, it's just not that complicated mm-hmm. um, in terms of what it is. How you achieve it um, is actually a bit more nuanced. But I think even there, there's just this big problem that um, we've created this cultural myth around innovation that it's this genius by himself toiling away at this invention. They have this complete vision for how it's going to work. And when it's launched, it changes the world and disrupts the whole category and invents it all. And, you know, word association, I say innovation, you think Steve Jobs, iPhone, right? Apple. Right. Um, if I asked you that same question, you know, a hundred years ago, you'd say, uh, Henry Ford, yeah. right? And, you know, if it was 20 years before that, you'd say Edison or Graham Bell or 100, 200 years before that, say Da Vinci. Yeah. All those sorts of things. And yeah. it's all just not true, you know? Why? But how? Don't, didn't don't they, didn't those things happen? How many people work at Apple? I have no idea. Thousands. Right. Thousands of people. If Steve Jobs can by himself invent an iPhone that takes over the world, what are those people for? Sure. But what about Edison? What about the, the Gutenberg printing yeah, press? Yeah, Edison had Henry a Ford? huge team of engineers. So if you pull up, you can go on you know, Google Images, look for Edison's workshop. It's, it's a big lab. There's 40 workstations in there. They're set up in a line so that Edison can supervise and manage. They're near each other so people can collaborate and tinker with ideas together. That's really where, that's innovation mostly. You know, mm-hmm. it's, it's mostly iterative. It's mostly collaborative. 
Um, and it's rarely some brand new invention the world's never seen before. So, you know, take iPhone. There's been, you know, touchscreen devices. There's been tablets. There were smartphones on the market. There were devices that looked extremely similar to the, to the iPhone before Apple came out. You know, the, there, it was a nicer interface. It did a lot of things a little bit better. Um, but it was, it was very broadly an iterative product that came out at a good time in terms of price, in terms of data networks, in terms of, you know, cloud solutions, things like that. Um, wasn't Steve Jobs. And those inventions really are. And I think, you know, we love to tell ourselves that story. It's very heroic. Um, and it makes a great movie. You know, you're going to go see a movie about Ashton Kutcher where Steve Jobs takes acid and 30 years later is an asshole and comes up with an iPhone. Amazing. No one wants to see a movie about iterative development, a bunch of engineers, you know, going to conferences and talking about gesture devices for 30 years and, you know, trying some stuff out. It doesn't really work and getting feedback and going back to the drawing board. It's just boring. And, you know, I think our need to have that simple story and that inspiring story of, you know, one man with a vision changes the world. Mm-hmm. Um, I think that actually holds us back because it makes you think if I'm not that person, I can't do it. Or if my company doesn't have that person, we're not innovative. Mm-hmm. And the reality of it is there's no, there's no one silver bullet that makes you innovative. Um, it's, it's an organizational design process. There's culture, there's resourcing, there's structures, there's technologies, there's tools, there's a commitment, you know, it, the, the most important ingredient is failure. You just have to fail a bunch if mm-hmm. you want to try something new. So I was going to ask you this question, but I think you're kind of leading that direction already. Um, I was going to ask if you take the, the, the single person versus the group of people out of the innovation myth or the innovation question, um, like the, there was still innovative things like the, the motor vehicle, the printing press, the light bulb, um, is, is that not like innovation? I think, you, you know, so take motor vehicles. There have been motor vehicles for a long time before Ford. Mm-hmm. Didn't invent it. Um, so Mercedes have been doing vehicles for a long time before that. There's companies you never heard of and doing it before that. You know, I think where people don't focus as much is the innovations we know about are the ones that were commercially successful. Yes. And the hard work of innovation is often not so much the invention, but actually how do we get this to catch on? Mm-hmm. How do we let people know about it? How do we change people's behaviors? How do we create a market for it? That's the hard, that's a lot of the hard stuff. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think one of the things that, you know, millennial generation is a little bit guilty of is we always want an open pasture, you know, blank slate. No one's doing this. And so how many times a week does someone say, Oh, I've got a great app idea. And then you Google it. Oh, someone's already done it. I'm not going to do that one. I'll do something else. Mm-hmm. And there's just this, this lack of willingness to compete. And to, to marginally make something better and eke it out, you know, head to head with someone who's already in that space. We have this myth that, you know, you should invent the iPod or you should invent Facebook. And if it's something that's already been done, don't do it. Do something else. Mm-hmm. So you argue that if, if there's already something out there, there's still an opportunity to innovate there. Yeah, of course. You know, not something that's out there is not solving every problem mm-hmm. that's around it. And even if it is, there might be a different way to solve that problem. Mm-hmm. And if you can do either of those two things and get some value back from it, then you're innovating. So we've talked about innovation as a process rather than like a, a concept, I suppose. You mentioned the word organizational design mm. before, and, and we've spoken about how innovation ties in with that. So can you just give us a bit of an explanation for what, what that is? And So organizational design... Um, it's, it's sort of design thinking mashed up with strategy a bit. So, you know, what is design thinking, right? So how do you design a product? Um, the idea of design thinking is, well, let's understand the person 
that is going to be using this product. Let's understand, you know, Adam's emotions, his feelings, his context, his behaviors. And if we just start by just that raw processing of, of understanding, the product will emerge from that. Rather than saying, how do we make a better toothbrush? Let's talk to Adam about his health and his teeth and what he thinks about that. His morning routine. Maybe we invent a better toothbrush. Maybe we invent something else that might be better for Adam. And so the idea of organizational design is the same thing. Let's really interrogate what the organization needs. Let's interrogate the organization's behaviors. Let's get a better understanding of that organization in its context of, of industry or market. Rather than trying to find, you know, it should be a car company or it should be a software company. Let's understand it from a cultural perspective, in terms of its values, in terms of its competitive needs, and then build the product, which is an organization around that. And so, mm-hmm. you know, the elements um, of an organization that you're designing are, are pretty simple. It's people, different models for it, but um, people, architecture, and routines. Um, so people is basically who you hire, what are the skills, what's their experience, what are the values, what are they like as people. Architecture is basic organizations, you know, what are their roles and responsibilities, um, what's the hierarchy, what are the different styles of the business, how they relate to one another. And then routines are just what are the processes and things that happen on a recurring basis across any of the business. All of those things are actually pretty easy to, to manage. You can change how you hire, you can change how you organize, you can change processes really simply. Start first with that principle of design. Let's really get empathetic and develop a deep understanding about what his organization could be and then make all those things after it. And is that how you be innovative? You can choose to design for innovation. Yeah. You can choose to design for whatever you want. So McMaster Car, not designed for innovation. Designed for making a ton of money in a space that's really mature at by following some really dogmatic principles about how to manage. Mm-hmm. Super well-designed organization. That design of that organization fits the needs of the owners perfectly. Mm-hmm. Fascinating. So we've kind of, we talked a little bit about, um, we've, we've used a few examples of different companies that are maybe innovative or maybe not and challenging that myth. Um, and I wanted to ask you of this concept of the, the first mover advantage. Mm. And I don't, I personally don't believe there is a first mover advantage being the first company or person to do something. Um, historically hasn't necessarily made you the most successful um, at it. I actually think that it should, we should probably rename it to the best mover advantage, mm. um, which sounds so obvious, right? If you're the best, yeah. then you will succeed. But um, <laughs> but I just wanted to ask you whether you believe that that's true or do you have a kind of different hypothesis? Um, I, you know, I, I don't think it's, it's not true. Mm-hmm. It, it exists sometimes. Um, you just can't give me this one thing. No, I, I never would. Um, of course it's true sometimes, right? You know, there's, there's plenty of examples, depending on what you're talking about, you know, the idea from game theory, right? So certain um, auction structures, if you have the first bid, that's for the best. Um, but yeah, there's definitely companies who, you know, got to something first and got a lot of profit from it. I think the problem with first mover advantage is it's much more of a historical construct than anything else. Because there is no such thing as the first to do anything. Like, give me an example of a company that's the first to do something. No idea. So, you know, people say, oh, well, you know, Apple was the first with the iPod. We talked about that's not true. You know, oh, Ford was the first with the car. That's not true. Um, there's, there is no first first. You know, it's, it's something that is just a matter of degree more than anything else. Yeah, well, because everything's a combination of what came before it. So, right. nothing is like completely break out, blow you away. It's well, nothing successful is anyway because it's it's too far ahead and people can't anchor it back to something that they that makes sense to them. Um, so everything that is commercially successful is just 
a better way of doing something or a combination of a few different things together? I think that the, the idea of first is really more about branding than actual strategy. Mm-hmm. You know, you want to be known as we were the first ones to put radio on the internet. You know, even though you probably weren't, it's a good way to get remembered. And it's something that, especially in our industry, there's just a massive amount of attention to such and such an agency was the first one to do this kind of activation or to use this kind of technology or to do this kind of campaign. First, 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 first must be the best. Um, and in a lot of cases, usually first is the worst. You know, you're paying the price for a lot of getting a lot of kinks out of the system. Mm-hmm. You're going to not do it as efficiently or as smoothly as someone else might. And, you know, we've got some clients who intentionally avoid being first movers and it frustrates the hell out of certain folks at DT who want to sell them new stuff, mm-hmm. but I actually think they're really smart. You know, how, how bad off will they be if they wait a year? Mm-hmm. Let some other client, another vertical test it out. Let's figure out the problems with that first. Let DT build up some experience and then, yeah, we'll buy it from them later. Mm-hmm. I think that's great. I would do that if, you know, if I was running one of these sorts of companies. Um, I think, you know, fast mover, I'll, I'll counter your best mover because, mm-hmm. You know, best mover, that strategy is move. So you're just saying have a good strategy and execute it. It's, yep. you know, it's not really saying much, but fast is important. So when you know a move is a good move to make, get there quickly. Mm-hmm. Don't have to be the first one. I think if, if that's your, the, be first. If you're optimizing for first, you're not optimizing for a lot of other things like do it well, do it cheaply, serve a real need. Mm-hmm. If your mission is just do it before anyone else has, you're going you're to mess up a lot. But fast means, Know when it's the right time. Be really coordinated and swift. Get in there. And do a good job because you know what you're doing. You're so practical in the way you think about things. Cynical, practical, cynical. Uh-huh. That's that. Yeah, highly <laughs> trained. But I think that's what I think that's why a lot of uh, when when you approach client work and and just throughout your career, that's kind of what's really helped you um, be so successful. Yeah, just this kind of approach of. Everything has to be complete, like, don't get sucked into the subjectiveness of, of something. Um, has to be completely objective, has to be rational, has to be, um, logical, and, and that's difficult to do. Mm. Especially in, in our space, right? Because mm. there is a love of ideas, you know, yep. in, in digital and, or in marketing or in advertising, especially around technology. We love the idea of what this technology is going to do and mm-hmm. you know, it's going to transform the business or it's going to, disrupt this or that you know segment of the market we follow those ideas and we don't really stop to look at how much has it actually really made a difference in terms of what they've done so example of this a bit controversial but um a lot of people think nike plus was a big game changer for nike um rga won a ton of awards for it a lot of people look at that as that's the pinnacle of you know technology and in, in advertising well they've shut it down so just before you go on Nike Plus, just to explain to people who mm. um, aren't familiar with it, what is it? Nike Plus was this initiative where um, Nike was going to create essentially a set of wearables um, that would track your exercise activity. So yeah. how much do you run? How fast do you run? Are you biking? Are you swimming? Kind of like a proto Fitbit that's really tied to Nike. And the idea was that this is creating a whole new you know, way of communicating and relationship with the customer and experience of Nike and all these different things. Mm-hmm. Um, and the idea was, this is a game changer for Nike. You know, mm-hmm. It's going to change everything they do. What a brilliant move by RGA. And there's all this media and all this reach they're getting from it. You know, it's great. They shut it down, fears into it. Mm-hmm. So did it change their business? No, they're not doing it anymore. Um, the idea was that this was going to dramatically transform how they market and they don't have to pay for all this advertising anymore. Everything spend went up during that time period, every single year, yep. by millions of dollars globally. So didn't achieve that objective. So in terms of Lovely idea. Prototype was really nice. Has it transformed Nike's business? I don't think so. 
Mm-hmm. It's interesting actually because um, at South by Southwest, um, Under Armour CEO was was talking a little trash. Mm-hmm. Um, so what I think was the bigger innovation for Nike at the same time was the knit upper of the shoes. Mm-hmm. So traditionally, Nike has shoes that are different pieces put together, and that's why they have to hire um, you know laborers, child laborers, things like that, and yep. get into a lot of really bad situations. It's because it's just there's no other cheap way to do it. The fly knit uh, thing is something that can be done by a machine, doesn't require labor. And thereby can be produced anywhere in the world. So not only does it eliminate this horrible labor problem that they have, it also changes their distribution model, which means they can do more custom colors, more special editions. They can respond to local market fluctuations in terms of what's selling. They don't have to hold as much inventory. There's all these amazing things for Nike that I actually think had way more to do with influencing Nike's business, both from a kind of core logistics point of view, but also from a customer point of view, because you can get so many more of those flyknit shoes and you see them all the time, right? Like everybody's got those black flyknits and those, mm-hmm. those Nike freeze. Um, so Under Armour CEO was saying at South by Southwest that um, they're on the data bandwagon. That's what's different about Under Armour. And if Nike thinks that a knit upper is innovation, they're fooling themselves. Yep. So that's a guy I'd love to meet because I think he's wrong. Yeah. Well, Nike did the data thing. Yeah. And, and they shut it down. Shut it down. Yeah. So, I mean, did they not do it well? You know, are they really hiring different people than RGA had? I don't really think so. Meanwhile, I think that, you know, the Flynet is a big game changer for Nike mm-hmm. and it's not as sexy to certain people, uh, but it's a better idea to me. Yep. Because it's also done and it's a part of their business that's enduring. That's why I love you, Sol. It's just, <laughs> you kind of just cut through the bullshit and the hype and really get to the core business, the commercial outcome. Yeah. Well, I think the other thing for me is always, you're not solving a problem if it doesn't stay solved. Mm-hmm. So that flying it is something that Nike solved that problem. They're never going to go back. They don't have to. They can if they want to. They don't have to. The data thing, that's not a problem that's going to stay solved. There's going to be a different wearable every six months, different data. Everyone's going to catch up to you. You have to resolve that problem all the time. Mm-hmm. And so a problem that stays solved is a, it's a good solution. A problem that doesn't stay solved is a bad solution. Mm-hmm. I agree. So, so what does the future hold? You mean like for me or for the galaxy? <laughs> Let's start with the former and maybe um, move a little bit more broad, not to the not to the extent of the galaxy, but um, I think for me uh, personally, um, doing a lot more in kind of writing and, and thought leadership and areas like that. I think you know um, a little cautious to do that last year, just because just really brand new to the company and kind of want to figure out what's going on. Um, so I want to take some time to develop a point of view. So I've been doing a bit more of that. Mm-hmm. Um, I think your point of view is good. Thank it's, you. it's somewhat controversial, but in a positive way. It's rational, it's logical, it's well thought out. So I think if you can express yourself, I mean, hey, mate podcast, this is your first thought leadership piece. Uh, yeah, that's right. The first, the first meaningful one anyway. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, cool. Yeah, so trying to do more of that. Um, Really want to get back to doing some more hands-on work with data. Yeah. Um, haven't really done a lot of that in the last couple of years. Um, just kind of miss it. Um, so just, you know, getting a big fat data extract and trying to figure out what to do with it, mm-hmm. writing a little code, that kind of stuff. Um, we'll love to do a bit more of, um, and we'll do some of that. Um, you know, I think for DT, you know, which is kind of where, where my professional life is, um, it's just a never changing, never changing, always changing, never ending sort of cycle of chaos and, you know, abandoning stuff that's, that's dead and picking up stuff that's new, trying to figure out what the hell's going on, you know. So I think for us, you know, 
I think one of the, one of the most foolish things a strategist can try to do is predict the future yeah. and say, you know, it's, you know, talking a few years ago, someone would have said, Internet of Things, it's here, it's going to change everything, and I've never used it. Wearables last year, you know, it's going to be everywhere, and everybody hates their iWatch, doesn't think it's valuable. Now it's, you know, whatever, VR probably. And bots. Um, and bots. And, yeah. You know, those things aren't new either, so be careful. Yeah. Um, so I don't like to predict the future, really try not to. I hate writing a three-year roadmap for a client because I'm just making it up at that point and they're never going to follow it anyways. So, mm. you know, I like six months, 12 months. That's pretty good. 18, stretching at 24, pretty much the boundary mm. for our space. Um, I had a really interesting thing um, that Facebook does when they're writing their kind of their, their product roadmap and, and kind of company um, vision. They, they do six months in advance and 20 years in advance and they don't yeah. look at in between. That's great. Yeah. That I believe in. I think, you know, you can describe in a 20 year time a vision or priorities, values and ideals. Yeah. Um, but, you know, it's going to be this technology and this market serving these customers these ways. You shouldn't, you know, you're going to, you're going to tie yourself into some stuff you don't want to do. Yep. So final question, Sol, what's exciting you right now? You know, what's exciting to me right now in a really um, specific way, I guess, is every, every company's big companies have, have built these data sets. Um, and they spend a lot of money on this platform, that feed, this third party thing. Um, and they're just not really doing a hell of a lot with it. Um, and so there's this, you know, there's been big push to big data and host it all in the cloud and servers are there and there's all these tools to analyze it. There's not actually that many people like looking at the numbers and actually creating actionable stuff with that. Um, and so that's great for me because, you know, that's kind of going back to the roots of what I was doing in economics is just harnessing the stuff and making a decision with it. Um, so I think we're on the cusp of people actually starting to hear I'm predicting the future, but you know, um, <laughs> of, of people having an opportunity to actually start to, to use those things. And I think for me, that's really exciting because, um, you know, as the, the logical cynic, um, I want people to be using information more to make decisions rather than highest paid person opinion or what catches my fancy when I come back from South by Southwest. Um, and I think it's something that is, you know, the mark of civilized group of people is let's, let's use facts to make decisions. And so we have a good opportunity to start doing that in a lot of scale, especially in an industry like ours where there's a lot of hot air and a lot of bullshit. Um, we are building that opportunity to kind of get a little bit away from that. That is exciting to me. It sounds a little bit dry, but uh, I do get excited by those sorts of things. More logical cynics like me because they have numbers to do it with. And that's a wrap. Thanks for listening to Mate. For the show notes for today's episode, head to matepodcast.com slash five. You can subscribe to the show on iTunes, Stitcher, or wherever good podcasts are sold. And if you enjoyed the show, please leave us a review on your podcasting app of choice. I would like to make a few shout outs to people who have done exactly that on iTunes. So here goes a big, big, big thank you to Will Egan, Adam Power, Emma Macy, Hayden Dobson, Krista Levalecki, Ethan Dadaskalu, and Christelle Proctor. Sean Rowland, Javier De La Rosa, Kate Scottolaro, Chris Bottega, and Hakan Girjan. Really appreciate it, guys. Also, to Joachim Nilsson for your review on the French iTunes store. And finally, to Technology Cynic on the US iTunes store. I'm glad I was able to turn that cynicism around enough for you to leave us a review. 
finally, thank you to Saul Flores for coming on the show today, to Courtney Carmen for our beautiful logo, and to Nine Inch Nails for today's music, which was used under a Creative Commons license. This has been Mate Podcasts, and it was made with passion and a little sprinkle of love in Melbourne, Australia. I'm your host, Adam Jaffrey, and this was a Jaffrey product. We'll see you next time.